Okay, who can tell us what the first heaven is? It's on your study sheet. Just w- walk us through that. Somebody? Yes, Scott? The atmosphere. The atmosphere and where, what, where is it located? From, from the ground to the clouds. Okay, so, so make sure that you got that. The, the first heaven is the atmosphere. It's located from the ground, what we're standing on right now, all the way up to the clouds. Okay, there is a second heaven. Who, who can tell us what that is? Mike? Okay, say that again. Okay, that second heaven is outer space, located... Look, look on your study sheet. Can you do it? Somebody? Pat? Okay, it's located where the sun, moon, and the stars are. Okay, what we would call outer space. And then the third heaven. Somebody? Yes, Nick? The third heaven is the abode of God. Where is it located? Okay, we'll give you that. Planets, galaxies is the word that I'm thinking of here, but planets will work just as well. Okay, so there's three heavens. It's important for you to understand this because what John is, what's happening here in his life is he is transported, translated to the third heaven. But then we talked about the fact that there's something else that we need to make sure that we understand biblically, and that is that there's not just even one rapture. Now, I was talking to one uh, young lady last week who came to our church from another church several years ago, and she says, you know, I, I've gone to church all my life. The other church, they never taught us about the rapture. I come here, and I find out there's not just one of them. There's three of them, okay? So the, the first rapture, who can tell us what the first rapture is? Mark? Okay, the first rapture was the Old Testament saints that took place at the resurrection of Christ. The second rapture. Okay, New Testament saints of the church age, and then the third rapture is what? Somebody? Okay, Sparky, tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation. Then we talked about the fact that there are three signs. Who remembers what the first one was? The first sign is what? Somebody? Yes, Marge? The sign of the fig tree. The sign of the fig tree. If you're a guest with us this morning, understand this. Jesus gave us three signs to let us know when to expect this rapture uh, of the church. And the first sign that he gave us was the sign of the fig tree. Now, biblically, the fig tree is the nation of Israel. In 70 A.D., the nation of Israel was scattered throughout all of the world, just like the Old Testament prophesied that they would be. And for almost 2,000 years on this planet... There was not a nation of Israel. They were out of their homeland. And Jesus came along and he said, now, now listen, when you see the fig tree begin to put forth its branches, you begin to see those leaves, check it out. He says that generation will not pass before all of these things begin to take place. The sign of the fig tree. In 1948, the nation of Israel was put back in the land and became a nation once again. I mean, an incredible thing. Here are the Jews scattered all over the world in 1948, miraculously. In fact, if you go back and you check out commentaries from the previous century and the other ones, nobody, nobody, nobody was talking about the fact that Israel would once again become a nation because there was nobody who could figure out how in the world could that ever be 
a people out of their homeland for almost 2,000 years. There's no way that that could happen. It happened in 1948. And Jesus says, you watch it because that's a sign. There's another sign, a second sign. Yeah. The days of Noah. The sign of the days of Noah. He says it's going to be just like it was then. If you go back and all you've got is Genesis chapter 6 to give you the context of the days of Noah. And what you find out is there was lots of wild, demonic activity that was taking place all over the planet where wickedness and violence and every thought of man's imagination was wicked continually, the Scripture says. And again, just like the time that we're living in. Then the third sign that he gave to us. Yes. The days of Lot. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 18 and and chapter 19, what you find is characteristic of the days of Lot is quite honestly, Sodom and Gomorrah was full and running over with homosexuality. And I'm telling you, it is just this planet revisited right now. It is the days of Lot. And Jesus says, now listen, don't miss those signs. Sign of that fig tree, nation of Israel, put back in the homeland. Don't miss that one. And when you begin to see all types of demonic activity taking place on this planet, that's a sign. And when you see homosexuality going, uh, homosexuality running rampant on, on this planet, know that that's a sign. So that's, that's what we talked about last week. It's important for you to have that fixed in your mind as we come to Revelation 4 this morning. And as uh, just kind of uh, to set the direction, we're not going to make it through this much of the outline this morning, but just so you can see the big picture in Revelation, let me give you a little bit of a preview. First of all, what we're going to look at in this chapter is the sequence to heaven, the sequence to heaven, the heavenly translation and that is we're going to talk about what we're actually going to experience on the way when the rapture of the church takes place then we're going to see the scene in heaven in verses 2 through 8 and what you see in verses 2 through 8 is everything has to do with a throne the throne it's the heavenly throne and it's all of what we're going to see once we've gotten there Okay, so the first thing is what we're going to experience on the way to heaven. The next is what we're going to see once we're there. And then the third thing, the sound of heaven. And this is the heavenly throng. And this is, this is what we're going to hear once we've arrived there. So that's where we're going to be, be moving this morning. Now, one of the things that you don't want to forget as we move into Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, is that John is a picture of the New Testament church. All the way through, you look in the Gospel of John and all the way through his writings, and what you're going to find is John is a picture of the church in the New Testament. That's why John is the one who is raptured in chapter 4 and verse 1, because in the chronology of the events in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 1 is where the rapture of the church takes place. Now, we really don't have the time to go into all the detail once again of, of why John is a picture of the church. We, we covered this extensively in the early part of our uh, series here on Revelation. But do let me remind you of this. 
that though Jesus had 12 disciples that he obviously loved very much, in fact, in John chapter 13, in verse 1, it, it even says that he loved them to the end. I mean, he, he loved all of his disciples. But, but there was one disciple for which Jesus had a very, very special love, and that was, that was John. And John knew it, didn't he? That's why every time that you see John refer to himself in, in, in the Gospel of John, he calls himself, you remember, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You find that five times in the Gospel of John. The disciple whom Jesus loved. I thought he loved them all. He did. But he had a very, very special relationship, a very unique relationship with the Apostle John. In fact, the name John even means beloved. And you see, in that same way, the Bible says that, that Jesus loves the whole world. Okay? But it very directly points out in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 that he loved the church and he gave himself for it. You know what the New Testament teaches? Jesus has a very special relationship and a very unique love for the church. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5 even teaches that it's the kind of intimate love relationship that a man has for his bride. And you'll remember that the first Adam was alone. And you remember what happened there? God caused a sleep to fall upon him. And right there next to his heart, what God did is He opened His side, and with the substance that came out of His side, God formed that into a bride for Adam. And do you remember at the Last Supper, in John chapter 13 and verse 23, do you remember where John was? He, he was right there at Jesus' side with His head on His heart right there where the very next day Christ's side would be opened as He slept in death on the cross and with the substance that would come out, God would form a bride for His Son. And you see, John becomes a very beautiful picture of that in John chapter 13. And I mean, we could go, we could go on and on and on with all of the pictures that God has laid out so that we understand that the Apostle John is a picture of, of the church in the New Testament. But in, in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, what we see here is John pictures the, the catching away or the rapture of the bride of Christ, the, the church, the body of Christ. Okay, so let's get into it. The, the sequence to heaven. The sequence to heaven. The heavenly translation. How is it that we're actually going to be translated from this planet into the third heaven? And that's what John shows us in verses 1 and 2. And I want you to notice, first of all, the time it will happen. The time it will happen. Notice that verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4 begins, after this, okay, after this. Now, the obvious question that you ask when you see after this is what? After what? 
right? Okay, and, and what it does when he says after this is it brings you back and it makes you set the context. Now, this is about to be an incredible observation here, but I want you to notice that chapter 4 and verse 1 comes right after chapter 3 ends. Do you realize how much schooling you have to have to see things like that in the Scripture? And that's absolutely... Try not to be intimidated, but, but, but keep in mind now what chapters 2 and 3 were all about. Do you remember what chapters 2 and 3 were all about? You remember the Lord dictated to John seven letters to seven churches that existed in Asia Minor in 95 A.D., but with how they're placed in the book of Revelation, we've seen beyond any shadow of a doubt that the seven letters to the seven churches are representative of the seven periods of history that make up the church age. And with each of these letters, in a prophetic sense, our Lord is simply using these letters to outline for us the entire history of the church from John's day all the way to the end of it. And we've spent weeks and weeks and weeks covering those seven periods. And you'll notice that the seventh of the periods of church history represented uh, here in, in chapter 3, it's represented in the letter to the Laodiceans, which we've seen is the period of history that we're presently living in. And what happens in chapter 3, he begins in verse 14, addressing this letter that is outlining for us the period of history that we're presently living in, and it comes to a conclusion in verse 22, and the first words off of John's pen are, after this. Okay, And so in its context, what that means is, the rapture will be that event which concludes the church age. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ in the last days of the Laodicean church period will be that church that Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that would be alive and remain to be raptured off of this planet. That's the very time that we're presently living in. We are living in the last days of the last days. The last days of the Laodicean church period. And you know what? It's just it's, it's mind-boggling when you begin to think that at the first coming of Christ, even though Daniel's prophecy had clearly spelled out the, the time when Jesus would come at his first coming, what's just mind-boggling is that of all of the people that had the Scriptures, basically, other than Mary and Joseph, you know who actually witnessed the event? I mean, you had the shepherds, and then you had two other people, Anna and Simeon. They all had the same information. God spelled it out to where if you could count, you could figure out when He was going to hit the planet. And the whole planet, basically, missed it. And what's wild, is the Bible says that the coming of Christ that we're anticipating, no man knows the day and no man knows the hour, but what it tells us is that we can know times and seasons and boy, the times and seasons are, are just shouting out the fact that it's upon us! It's upon us! And the whole world, once again, all with the same information, absolutely clueless about what's getting ready to take place on this planet. So, contextually, 
we learn that the rapture will be that event which concludes the church age. And so what that means biblically is the rapture will be that event which restarts the final week of years of Daniel's vision of 70 weeks. Now just get that on your notes and don't let me lose you here because this is, listen, this is very simple. Okay, now make sure you've got it. Biblically, the rapture will be that event which restarts the final week of years of Daniel's vision of 70 weeks. Now, now just listen very carefully. Jot down whatever you can that can, can help you. But this is not difficult. But don't let me lose you here. Okay? There's not notes on the other side. You can just plug them in on, on this side. In the book of Daniel, God gave Daniel a vision that encompassed 70 weeks of years. In other words, 70 times 7 years. You got it? 70 weeks of years. Now listen, 69 of those weeks clicked off like clockwork, man. And what those 69 weeks did, according to Daniel chapter 9, is they bring you all the way up to the triumphal entry when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem where it looked like the nation of Israel was going to receive her king. But you remember what happened? He, he came in at the triumphal entry, and in a matter of a few days, they were already calling for his death, and ultimately, within just a matter of a few hours, they crucified their Messiah. Okay, now, now listen. At that point, we enter into a biblical parenthesis. And that parenthesis is called the church age. You see, that's why the New Testament calls the church a mystery. Because God had so laid out the prophecy in the Old Testament that had the nation of Israel accepted their Messiah, the church age wouldn't have even had to have happened. So the church age is really nothing more than one glorious 2,000-year parenthesis on God's timeline. But remember now, Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, it still has one more week remaining in that prophecy. Okay? And that seven year period will be completed before Jesus Christ comes back to this planet at his second coming to take up his throne where he will rule and reign over the nation of Israel from his throne in Jerusalem. And you see, the rapture will be that event that closes the parentheses of the church age, and then, after the rapture of the church, that final week of years of Daniel's prophecy will kick in what we call the seven-year tribulation period, what Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay, now, is everybody on the same page with me now? Is that simple to understand? There was one week of that remaining... The parentheses is the church age, and once the church is raptured out, bam! We kick in to that final week of years. And that's why the tribulation period is seven years long, because we're picking up that week of years of Daniel's prophecy. And you see, that's why, now, now listen, that's why after mentioning the church 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, in chapter 4 and verse 1, the church is raptured. And you see in chapters 4 and 5, you see the church 
But the church is where? In heaven. Chapters 6 through 18 are detailing what's going on on the earth at the same time that chapter 4 and 5 is talking about what's going on in heaven. And in chapter 6 through 18 of the book of Revelation, the longest section of the book, what God does is He brings you through four accounts of the tribulation. And in that whole detailed account, listen, the church is not mentioned one time. It is nowhere to be found on the earth, not one time. In that whole seven-year period, you don't see it again in the book of Revelation until you see it coming back out of heaven at the end of the seven years, following behind the Lord on white horses at His second coming, which takes place seven years after the rapture of the church. Everybody got it? Okay, cool. I'm, I'm encouraged. Okay, so that's the time it will happen. In short, the rapture is that event that closes the church age and begins the tribulation period. Okay, now let's look at the way it will happen. The way it will happen. Now, now John gives us in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4 and the first part of verse 2, what he, what he does here is he gives us a basic outline of the, the sequence of events that will take place as the Lord translates us from the earth and into His presence in the third heaven. But it's so brief that it really, if we didn't have other New Testament passages to compare this to, we, we might not fully comprehend what's, what's really going on here. But you see, that's the way that God has laid out His Word. What He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is that your human intellect and your human reasoning, your human mind and your human ears, your human brain cannot comprehend this book. What it says is this book has to be revealed to you, and it has to be revealed to you by the Spirit of God. But he's got a very distinct way that he does that. It's not, you know, the Spirit is now bringing, he's now revealing, what's this now? You know, that's not what's happening. What it says is he reveals the truth to us as we compare things spiritual with things spiritual. In other words, he reveals it to us as we compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, there are two other key passages in the New Testament that along with Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, they give us uh, the, the precise understanding of what it is that John experienced in Revelation chapter 4. And what those of us are anticipating experience here in the next couple of minutes or so, right? And one of those passages is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The other is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 57. And, and what I want us to do is, as we talk about the, the sequence of the rapture is I want us to look at what these other passages have to say in light of what John experienced there in Revelation chapter 4. And then what I want to do is take all of what we'll see from these three basic passages, and I want to give you a blow-by-blow -blow description of the way it'll actually happen as the Lord calls for us. But I'd like for you, if you would, to turn back to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because really 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, 
is, is really nothing more than the biblical explanation of all that John experienced in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. All the same exact components are here in this passage. John talked about over there in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 about heaven opening and, and there being a shout and, and the voice and a, a trumpet. I mean, the whole deal, and it's just explained here. And I want you to look with me at verse 13. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Okay, now what, what's happening in Thessalonica is, is in fact, this is one of the first letters, in fact, the first letter written to the churches. And Paul and Silas and Timothy have come into this. Well, you get the history of this in the book of Acts, chapter 17. They, they come into Thessalonica. They preach the gospel. People are being saved like crazy. It puts the whole city, what the Scripture says, in an uproar. I mean, there's all types of persecution. And, and Paul and Silas and Timothy, they've got to get out of there because it gets so intense and they're writing back to these people, and since that time, a lot of these people that have been persecuted, many of them have died, and Paul and Silas and Timothy hadn't been there long enough to give them the full information of what all of that meant. Here these people were, they were expecting Jesus to come at any moment, but these people died before he got there, and they're like, okay, so now what does this mean for them? I mean, well, they croaked, man, and they're not here, and... So, you know, I mean, he's coming for us, but so what happens to them now? Okay, and so now he's writing to them, and he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now, now this thing of, of sleep, he refers to several times in, in, in this passage. You see it here in verse 13. You see it in the middle of verse 14. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus. You see it at the end of verse 15. He talks about shall not prevent them which are asleep. And I think it's important that you understand that the word sleep here, or asleep, it isn't just a euphemism. You remember that word from English? Uh, 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 it's the word that when we're trying to soften the blow of something, you know, instead of saying the, the, the guy, well, he just died. We say that he, he passed away, okay? That, that's a euphemism. But that's not what Paul is using here. When he talks about sleep, he's not attempting to you know, camouflage the ugly reality of, of death. No, what you begin to see as you go through the New Testament is you find that the word sleep is the word that is used to describe the death of a believer in Jesus Christ. He even defines it for us right here in this passage. Look in verse 16. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And that's the definition of who we're talking about, that, that sleep, they are the dead in Christ. Or in other words, someone who died, who knew the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what the Bible teaches is that what would take place when someone dies who knows the Lord is that at the very moment that they draw their last breath, their soul and their spirit comes out of their body and that body simply goes to sleep. In fact, go to, go to Genesis 35. We'll, we'll come back to 1 Thessalonians 4 here in just a sec. But, but I want you to see this in Genesis 35 because... Hey, uh, we get it all the time. People who want to know, where'd you come up with that? Okay, Genesis 35, 
Now, in Genesis 35, Rachel is pregnant, and she and <clears throat> she and Jacob are are heading out of Bethel. And verse 16 says that after they had gone a, a little way, they came to Ephrath, and Rachel goes into hard labor. And just a little footnote, so that you don't miss it. You'll notice in the middle of verse 19 that God just screams out a little hint here, and He says, uh, "There's a picture here." Because notice verse 19, he says, Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Okay, which ought to perk up your ears just a little bit. Because, I mean, have you ever heard of a, another pregnant lady who came to Bethlehem to give birth to her child? And look at what the end of verse 18 uh, it says. She has the baby, and Jacob names the boy Benjamin. And you know what the name Benjamin means? The name coincidentally enough, means the son of my right hand. So you know what you got here? A pregnant lady coming to Bethlehem to give birth to the son of the right hand. Okay? Now, I don't know what that means. But, okay? But, but the point that I'm wanting you to see here is what happens to Rachel. Okay? Rachel, she gives birth, and in the process of this, she dies. And God's going to let us know something very significant about what actually takes place when someone dies. Look at verse 18. And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died. Okay, now just stop right, right there. Rachel is about to draw her last breath as this child is born. And as she does, she dies, and immediately her soul departs from her body. You know, there's all kinds of people today who have all kinds of ideas about what takes place when a person dies. You know, some say, well, you know, the grave is the end, and, you know, you live, you die, they, they bury you, and, and that's it. And then there's others, if you go to any college campus, and they're talking about, you know, soul sleep and, you know, all this stuff. We can go on and on and on with all the, the little ditties that people come up with of what happens after death. But all you need to know is that the God of the universe, the author of human life, says that when someone dies... Their soul departs out of their body, and the body falls asleep. Turn to Acts chapter 7, and let me show it to you again. Acts chapter 7. Now, Acts 7, of course, records a, a sermon preached by a, a deacon in the early church, a man by the name of Stephen. And his message was just a little bit too much for his listeners. I'm not sure if it was the content or if the, the dude preached too long or what. But rather than walk out on him, what they did is, is they killed him. He was the first Christian martyr. And look at what it says in verse 59. It says, And they, they stoned Stephen, and he called upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my Spirit, in verse 60, he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So do you see what happens? The Lord receives his spirit and the body falls asleep and awaits resurrection. Okay, now, now something that you need to note here, if you're going to really fully understand this, this, this whole thing, is that in the Old Testament, when the spirit and soul departed out of someone who died, as in the case of Rachel that we just saw back there in Genesis 35, it wasn't at that point 
because you're dealing with the Old Testament, it wasn't received into the presence of the Lord like Stephen was, like his soul and spirit was, because at that point, the blood of Jesus Christ had not yet been offered, and Christ had not yet sealed the victory through the resurrection of Christ. And that's why in Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus talked about believers being in a place that is called Abraham's bosom. Other places in the Scripture talks about it being paradise. Okay, that's for the Old Testament. That's where they went up until the, the resurrection of Christ. We saw that a little earlier this morning. The first resurrection was the uh, first rapture was the resurrection of Christ at, at, at His resurrection where the Old Testament saints were brought into the presence of the Lord. But now for us, okay, uh, for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us who are believers in a biblical sense, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, what he says is that to be absent from the body, in other words, for your soul and spirit to be absent from the body is for it, your soul and spirit, to be present with the Lord. Okay, so when we die, what happens is our soul and our spirit is received by the Lord and the body goes to sleep and it's placed in the ground until it is awakened by the trumpet of God at the rapture. Okay, so Paul lets us know in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, why don't you go back there, he lets us know what happens to our loved ones who know the Lord when they die. And he goes on in the middle of verse 13, and he says that ye sorrowed not. Now now listen, if the verse, if the verse stopped right there, we'd all be in a heap of trouble, wouldn't we? Because any of us who have lost someone that is very close to us know that, that death brings sorrow. It brings grief. It brings pain. It brings tears. But notice, he doesn't tell us not to grieve. He doesn't tell us not to cry. What he says is, I don't want you to sorrow. You're going to have that. But I don't want you to sorrow even as others which have no hope. And here's why. Verse 14. For if we believe... I mean, listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and one you know has gone already to be with the Lord. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with Him? Okay, now watch what's going on here. You see, when Jesus died, okay, He says if we believe that Jesus died, and when Jesus died, He bore the wages of sin in His death. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 56, it says that that is what gives death its sting. What, what is it that gives death its sting? Hello? Y'all don't know this? It's sin. Sin is the thing that gives death its, its sting. It's just like with a bee. A bee is just an you know, absolutely harmless little fat bug you know, that's you know, buzzing around. It's just that lousy stinger that the thing's got. You know? I mean, that's, that's the problem with it. this bee. It's got a, a stinger. And you see, on the cross, death drove its stinger into Christ, and it left it there. He bore the whole sting of death so that death for us that know the Lord... 
those of us who have had our sin removed, death has no more sting. He died and took the sting of death so that our death might be nothing more than falling asleep. And verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15, what it says is death, because of that, is swallowed up in victory. Because Jesus Christ didn't just die. Look at verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4. You see, He didn't just die. What it says is that He rose again. And you see, the reason His resurrection was so significant is that it was proof positive that the victory of, over sin and death and hell and the grave had been won. And not only that, because He rose again, we too will rise just as He did. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. His rising, it says, was just the first fruits. And you see, the, the first fruits were the guarantee of a harvest that would follow. So you see, there's no need, folks. And, and we, man, we've been seeing... Some, some wild things happen in this fellowship when it comes to, to, to death. But now, li- listen, in light of what this is all talking about and what's, what awaits us that know the Lord, listen, there is no reason for anybody who knows the Lord to fear death. Whether it be your own or, or the death of, of someone that you love, listen, all death is is simply a valley of shadow where Jesus walks with us. I mean, hey, we're not going into that thing alone. And, and listen, we don't stay there either. We don't just go into it. We go through it. Do you remember that? In Psalm 23 and verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. And listen, folks, you can bank on that. Man, you, you, you can bank on, on the fact that He was there for your loved one. When your loved one was walking through that valley, what it says is the Lord Jesus Christ comes and He walks with us through that thing. And the end of verse 14 says that when Jesus comes again in the clouds at the rapture, they'll be with Him there too. He walked with them through the valley of the shadow of death and when He comes again... What it says is they are going to be with Him. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus, verse 14 says, will God bring with Him. They'll be with Him then because they're with Him now. You see, they've already entered into, look down to verse 17, they've already entered into the blessedness of ever being with the Lord. And yeah, man, you, you may... You may sorrow that they're not with you, but you can take comfort in the fact that they're with Him. Right? And you see, when you know what the Bible says, and as it says in the verse, and you believe what God has done, man, death is nothing to fear. All it is is simply a doorway through which we step from earth into the very presence of God Himself, where the psalmist said, are pleasures forevermore. And you see, and that's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, he says, 
I'm, I'm in a street betwixt two. In, in other words, I, I, I'm between a rock and a hard place. He says, what, what I want to do is I want to depart. That, that is my soul and spirit. Man, I, I'd like for it to, to just, just depart, and, and I'd like to just be with Christ because that's, he says, that's, that's far better. But he says, there's still some things that I need to be doing in, in this body before it goes to sleep. You see, when you know, when you know what God has done for you, that God Himself has died for us, that He took the sting of death Himself and rose victorious over it, and He gave to us the promise of resurrection, you know what? Then you begin to understand why it is that the, the other apostles, they all had the attitude of, hey, fellas, you know... What's the worst thing that can happen to us? You know, they, they, they can kill us and then we go to be with Jesus forevermore. And man, I, I love the way that Paul puts it over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Man, he's come through 56 straight verses talking about the resurrection. And he, he hits that section about Christ taking the, the sting out of death. And he says in verse 57, Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, what an incredible thing that the Lord is showing us here about death and the promise of the future. But I want you to notice that them which are asleep in verses 13 and 14 is used in contrast to those which are alive and remain in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And, and those which are alive and remain is the way that God describes the, the generation of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who, like Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, would not see death but would be alive in their physical bodies and remain on this earth until they were raptured off of it. And, and he says that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now the word prevent there is a word that is kind of fallen out of usage in our English language. It's a great word though. The word means pre-event. Pre-event or before the event. We use the word precede today to mean the same thing. What he's saying here is we won't be raptured before those who are asleep. But notice at the end of verse 14, it says that when Jesus comes for us, that them which sleep in Jesus, He will bring with Him. And then in verse 15, He says that they're going to go up before we do. Okay, so what's, what's the deal? Well, you need to understand, is in verse 14, when he's talking about them coming with him, he's talking about what part of them? He's talking about their souls and their spirits. Then in verse 15, when he talks about them going before we do, he's talking about their bodies. You say, okay, well, how do you know that? Look at the end of verse 16. And the dead in Christ, that's those who are asleep, shall rise first. Okay, that, that body that was planted into the ground, every time the soul of someone who knew the Lord departed out of it and was received into the presence of the Lord, 
that body is going to come up out of that grave and it's going to be transformed into a glorious body and connect once more with the soul and spirit that used to be a part of that thing. And it's as if Paul is saying here, hey, now listen, guys, don't worry about your your loved ones. First of all, they're with the Lord already. And when He comes, they'll be coming with Him. And no, they might not have the thrill of being raptured, but buddy, they will know the thrill of being resurrected. And that's going to happen first, the end of verse 16 says. Our being raptured won't precede them, the end of verse 15 says. You see, now don't try to fine tune this thing too much with your finite mind because 1 Corinthians 15 52 says that it's all going to take place in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So, you know, what's happening first and what's happening second, buddy? I mean, when it's happening in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's pretty quick. In fact, we'll talk more about that in just a sec. Go over to 1 Corinthians 15. Because I want to make make sure that you're understanding how these three passages all work together here. First Corinthians 15. You see the man all all in this moment, in the twinkling of an eye. There's all kinds of things that are going on. Now in First Corinthians 15, Paul's talking uh, uh, to the whole chapter about the resurrection, and he's been talking. Hear about the fact that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, look at verse 20, that we too are going to rise because He was just the first fruits of the resurrection. But you see, there were some in Corinth who were mocking this whole resurrection thing and they were asking some questions in verse 35 to try to you know, poke fun at it. And they say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of the, 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 the attitude there. And so Paul answers them in verses 36 to 54. We don't have time to go into all of the verses right now, but basically what Paul is saying here is that there will be a transformation of these bodies because verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit corruption. In order to live in that domain, he's saying... We can't be earthly like Adam, verse 47. We must be heavenly like Christ. Flesh and blood, in verse 50, is in reference to our physical bodies. And the whole point is that we can't enter the eternal kingdom in our present bodies. They've got to be transformed. Verse 53 because there, you see, there's no way to dwell in the incorruptible, immortal kingdom of God in a corruptible, mortal body. And he explains here, just like he, he does over there in First Thessalonians chapter four, four, that some of us, some of us are going to die, and they'll take this corruptible, mortal body, and they'll put it in the ground. And one day, verse fifty-two says. The trumpet's going to sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And that old body is going to be changed. But verse 51 says, not all of us are going to be dead when that trumpet sounds. But whether we're dead or alive, at that moment, 
our bodies are all going to experience the same transformation. So some of us are going to die. Now put our bodies in the ground. And when the trumpet sounds, that, that body will be changed the, the, the instant that we come out of the grave. There will be others of us who will be alive and remain on the earth until the time and will be changed on the way up. But both verse 51 and verse 52 both say, we shall all be changed. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He said, for our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body. You see, that's what all of us have to be have to look forward to. I love the way that John puts it when he talked about this promise in First John chapter three, verses one and two. He said, "Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called." the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know. This is not that we're, we think so. This is not that we hope so. This is not that we pray that this will be so. He says, but we know, we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So you see, there's going to be a transformation that is going to take place before we can inherit that immortal, eternal kingdom. Now, now go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. And watch how he... Or over to 1 Thessalonians 4. And watch how he explains it further in verse 16. He says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. Now, now just stop there for a second. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. Now, why did He put the word Himself in there? I mean, look at the verse. Why didn't He just say, For the Lord shall descend from heaven? makes the same exact sense, doesn't it? You know why it's there? Because I think the Lord wants us to know how important this event is to Him. You you see, when when you get to be a big wig, when you get to be real important, you don't, you don't go and get people. You see, when you really become the big cheese, you know what you do? You sin for people. You know what I'm saying? Uh, let's, let's say you hit the big time. I don't know how it happened. The President of the United States, he, he calls you up and he invites you to come to the White House and he, he, you know, he contacts you and he says, uh, listen, uh, uh, we'll, we'll pick you up at RFK. Okay, now I guarantee you, when he's talking about you getting picked up there, he ain't talking about he's going to come and he's going to be there when you arrive. Okay? What, what it, I mean, he may get a, a limo for you and a driver, the whole shot, but I guarantee you, the President of the United States ain't going to drive out there and pick you up. But check this out. Jesus isn't sending for us. He's coming for us, and He's coming Himself. Look at verse 16. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And you know what that shout is? 
We saw it over in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Come up hither! And the door in heaven is opened. That's what we saw in Revelation 4. Hey, welcome, those of you who just woke up. Glad to have you here. You see, and it's the same exact thing here. Heaven opens, the Lord descends, and He shouts, Come up hither! And remember, the end of verse 14 says that when He does this, He'll have with Him all the people who were saved and have passed away. Okay? Their souls and their spirit. He descends from heaven with them, and He shouts, Come up hither! And just like Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2 says, immediately, just like we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52, in the twinkling of an eye, something happens. You know that General Electric has fine-tuned this thing to the twinkling of an eye and tell us that it is 11 one-hundredths of a second. 11 one-hundredths of a second. And in that very instant, I mean, it's not the clapping of your hands. It's not the, it's not the, the snap of your fingers. 11 one-hundredths of a second in that very instant, the body of those believers that are with Him will be risen from the grave and transformed into a glorious body and be reconnected with the soul and the spirit. And the bodies of those of us who are alive and remain on this planet will be transformed in that instant on the way up. And notice what else it says in verse 16. There will also be, just like John talked about in Revelation 4 and verse 1, there will be a voice. It's identified here as the voice of the archangel. The archangel is called Michael in Jude, verse 9. And I'm not exactly sure what he's going to say, but I do know that he's been watching this, this whole scenario of human life unfold ever since the first man and woman died in the garden. And at this moment, understand, the victory is complete. And 1 Corinthians 15.54 says, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And maybe, maybe the archangel is going to be the one to declare that. After all of these centuries watching the death and dying of people, maybe at this point the archangel is going to, with his voice, exclaim, Death is swallowed up in victory! Yes! And look at something else. Not only is the Lord going to speak and the archangel going to speak, there's also going to be, just like John heard in Revelation 4, verse 1, a trumpet. Verse 16 says, And with the trump of God. Now, now listen. Trumpets are used in the Bible to call people to an assembly. Now, in just a very general sense, trumpets are used in that way to call people to an assembly. And I'm telling you, it's amazing when you begin to just start tracing this thing through the Bible to see what you find. Now listen, you don't need to turn to these. I would jot down the references though. The first time that you find a trumpet being sounded in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 13. Exodus 19 and verse 13. And listen to what it says. Would you just listen? When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall... Come up to the mount. 
I mean, you got to love it. And it's the same kind of picture in Joshua chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Verse 5 of Joshua 6 says that when the people heard the trumpet, the people ascended up. In Judges chapter 6, in verse 34, Gideon blew a trumpet. In verse 35 says, they came up to meet him. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. I think there's a little bit of something God's wanting to say to us. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 20. In what place ye hear the sound of the trumpet, thither shall ye assemble to us. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 5. Blow ye the trumpet in the land, cry, shout, and gather together and say, assemble yourselves. And you know what all this tells me? This tells me God's been thinking about this thing for a long time. So trumpets were used in a general sense to call people to an assembly. But specifically, the assembly would be for two purposes. It was either to assemble people for worship or to assemble people for war. And let me tell you something. When that trumpet sounds, all of us, are going to be assembled. And we will assemble there for worship. And buddy, I don't know what kind of worship time you've had with the Lord in your life. In that moment, you've never had one like you'll have then. But you see, we man, right now, we worship Him and we worship Him by faith. And Peter, he, he talked about we love Him even though we've never seen Him. I mean, can you imagine being able to finally get to see Him? As He welcomes us with those nail-pierced hands that bought our redemption, allowed us to be there in the first place, we assemble together the trumpet sounds to assemble us for, for worship. But that trumpet will also be the announcement of assembly for war. Notice at the end of verse 17 that all this assembling is going to take place where? In the air. The dead in Christ rise first and they're resurrected with a glorified body while we which are alive and remain are caught up and changed on the way up and connect with them in the clouds and, and, and watch this phrase to meet the Lord in the air. Now notice, he's not at this point, at the rapture, he's not going to step foot on the earth at this time, at this event. Okay, The next time that our Lord steps foot on this earth, it will be for the purpose of putting Satan and all of his enemies and all of those who have rejected him, it will be for the purpose of putting him under his feet. It's that time when the meek and lowly Lamb of God comes in full power and glory as the Lion from the tribe of Judah. 
But you see, there's a, a seven-year period between the rapture and the second coming of, of, of Christ. Okay, there's that, that seven-year period. But when He comes for His church, He says that He is going to meet them in the air. Okay, now have you ever asked yourself, why is it that He is going to meet us in the air? And we, we looked at some things last week. But have you ever asked yourself, why is He going to meet us in the air. I mean, I mean, why why didn't he why didn't he just why didn't he just do it in heaven, right? I mean, that's where we're going to go anyway. So so you know, why not just have the meeting there? Well, first of all, keep in mind that that what this event is and what's actually taking place in this event is that our salvation is being completed. You, you see, you got saved the day you got saved. But, but your salvation was not completed at, at that point. The book of Romans chapter 8 says that we await the, the redemption of these, these bodies. You see, the day that we got saved, listen, what happened to us is we had a spiritual transformation. And spiritually, man, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we became a new creature. Old things passed away, and behold, all things became new in our souls and our spirits. But at that point, we didn't get a new body. And you see, this, this, this body of, of flesh is, is the thing that's been causing all of our, our sin problems ever since we got saved. We didn't get a glorified body at that point. That was the promise of the future. That's what the Scripture refers to as our glorification. When in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we undergo a physical transformation. So you see, what we're talking about here with the rapture and what's taking place there, what it is, is the completion of our salvation. But again, the question is, why would God choose to complete this act in the air? Well, we saw already in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Remember, you cannot enter into that eternal state in a corruptible, mortal body. So you see, it's got to be changed before you get there. But if it has to be changed before you get there, then why didn't He change it when you were on the earth? Right? Well, keep in mind that Satan in the Scripture is called the Prince of of the power of the of the air. You see, what I think what you've got God doing here is He's presenting Satan one major facial. <laughs> you see, the, the trumpet sounds. And what you have is heaven opening and the King of Kings along with all of the hosts of heaven, buddy, they are assembling for war. And what they do is they come down into the Prince of uh, the, the domain of the prince of darkness, of the power of the air, and they're coming for war. And in the face of his power, he completes the salvation plan right there in his face as if to say, now what are you going to do about that? These, these are mine, and there ain't one thing you can do about it. You know, we, we talk about the, the six-day war that was over there. This is the 11 one-hundredths of a second war that takes place between God and Satan. 
as he transforms us right in Satan's domain. And look at the end of verse 17. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. do, Do you understand this morning the blessedness of that promise? There will never be another time where we are separated from His physical presence. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, let's, let, let's pull it all together. Look, look at the bottom of your study sheet. Man, we, we've been all over the place this morning just trying to get our bearings on what's going to be taking place at, at the rapture. Okay, now, now let me just give it to you in a concise little fashion. In, strangely enough, seven little steps. Number one, heaven opens... And the Lord descends. Okay, now, and hopefully, when we go through these, hopefully now, this is just gonna, you understand this. Heaven opens, and the Lord descends. Then there is the shout, the come up hither. And then the voice, the voice of the archangel, that death is swallowed up in victory. And then the trumpet sounds. Assembling God's people for worship and assembling the host of heaven for war in the domain of the prince of the power of the air. Number five, the bodies of dead believers are resurrected, glorified, and reunited with their souls and spirits in the air Then number six, the bodies of those who are alive and remain are raptured and glorified in the air. And you see the dead in Christ, you know, in the grave, they they rise first because they've got six feet further to go. But again, it's all happening in 11 one hundredths of a second. So, you know, again, don't try to fine tune that thing too much. So the bodies of those who are alive and remain are raptured and glorified in the air. And then number seven, we are taken to the third heaven to be with the Lord. And though we will ever be with the Lord, we won't always be there in the third heaven because, again, after seven years, we're coming back down to this planet where he's going to set up his thousand-year reign on the earth. And then in the book of Revelation, we'll see the new heaven, the new earth, and then that will just be translated into eternity. So, that's the sequence to heaven. That, that's all that's going to take place, and that's all that is being pictured for us in Revelation chapter 4, as heaven opens and John, a picture of the church, is, is caught up. Now, if you're here this morning, and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, man, I'm telling you, there is some incredible promises that God has for you. And it all begins with the incredible promise that God has the power to remove your sin today if you will simply humble yourself before Him admitting that you are a sinner incapable of doing anything to remove that sin yourself. 
And when you will come to that place, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, what he'll do is he'll take that sin away. He will redeem your soul and your spirit. It'll be made new as he comes to live inside of you. And you'll have the promise of being raptured, or if you die, of being resurrected someday to spend an eternity with him. That's the promise that some of you need to hear. Then there's others of you, and in recent weeks, months, in fact, all of us that are a part of this fellowship, and we've seen a dear brother go home to to be with the Lord. And man, I'm just telling you, I'm studying for this thing. I was getting just so excited about about all of that, and and so comforted knowing. What is going to take place? So excited for, for this fellowship to be reminded of, of some of these, these truths this morning so we understand we don't have anything to fear when it comes to this thing of death. Some of you live in such fear that maybe one of your kids are going to die or your spouse is going to die or you're going to die. And, God is, is saying to us, he comes to that whole passage there in First Thessalonians, and he says, after all of that teaching, he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. He's, somehow the sovereign God of the universe thought that if you just knew what was going to take place and that there really is nothing in the life of a believer that we've got to fear when it comes to this thing of death, God just was crazy enough to think that that might be of comfort to us. And I pray that it will be of comfort to you today.